0: Hi there, thanks for stopping by, and welcome to Dharma Punks New York. If you'd like to support my work, I'm a Buddhist pastor and I do everything, the counseling and the teaching entirely by donation. The Venmo is Dharma Punks with an XNYC, all of the talks, the last 715 can be found by uh, going to the podcast site or the dharmapunksnyc.com page. There's information about upcoming gatherings uh, when we do have retreats, they're listed. And the uh, PayPal button is there too, if you'd like to use that. There's also a Patreon link. So thanks for your support. And tonight we're talking about unconscious memories how they work, why they are so influential, what they're trying very often to tell us. So I'm sure there was a more elegant way to put that, but we'll have to go with with that. In Freud's theory of personality, the unconscious is a vast reserve of feelings, urges, and memories working outside of our awareness, Manifesting sometimes in benign forms like slips of the tongue or dreams or punchlines of jokes, but sometimes also manifest in very dysfunctional intrusions, such as in the time of Freud, what they called hysteria, which today we might call uh, post-traumatic stress disorder, or phobias, Today though we know that the intrusion of unconscious content is clearly manifest in anxiety and panic attacks attacks addictive compulsions intrusive repetitive ideations catastrophizing very often ongoing intrusive resentments relationship problems as well as a host of somatic disorders. So um, they're pretty much everywhere. Freud was not the first individual that noted the existence of essentially content arising from parts of the mind that lie outside of our conscious awareness. Not only was there a Westerner before him, Pierre Genet, I believe his name was, who was a an influence of Freud, who first coined the term subconscious. But actually, going back some 2,500 years, the Buddha in the Dharma mentioned what he called anusayas underlying tendencies that lead to automatic behaviors. There could not be anything, a better clear definition of, of when the unconscious interrupts, interferes, intrudes upon our daily functioning. And these automatic underlying tendencies arise from the depths of the mind whenever we meet with suitable conditions. And certainly Um, in other spiritual traditions with devils and so on and so forth, try to explain the desires and the cravings and the self-destructive behaviors that human beings have by attaching it to a demonic figure that they believe lies latent or nascent in the depths of the brain, always willing to come out and as in certain religions believe tempt us to go astray so clearly it's never been far from human awareness that there are parts of one's self experience that are not constructed or authored authored by conscious will that we very often act in ways that are uh, we experience states that um, are in no way what what we would want that seem to come out of nowhere and very often can lead to some form of dismay, embarrassment, or the like. So we're going to focus on this in terms of the two different kinds of memory systems that we have Uh, which are important to understand, so that we can talk about emotional memories. The first kind of memory system that we're all aware that we have is declarative or explicit memories. Those are the memories you can recall at will and you can talk about with other people and you can recite them as a story. So for instance, what you did in high school, what you what your uh, early college years or years away from home were like, what your uh, last vacation, if you've been on one, was like. So you can essentially bring up some words and maybe a couple of visual images that you can string together as a story and you can recite it to another human being. These declarative memories are stored in uh, largely organized by the hippocampus but they're stored in higher regions of the brain, the neocortex. And these memories that we can recall at will whenever we want, uh, you can recall uh, maybe what you did yesterday or hopefully you can recall at least what you did today and tell it as a story and narrative memories or declarative memories are what we construct our identity very often from. When people ask us, tell me about yourself, what you'll do is bring to mind some of the main experiences in your life, what you do for a living, uh, what your skills are. And you'll, all those memories you you've recalled because you want to answer the question, and you'll string together them as a story. Um, And narrative memories do have one very, very positive benefit, which is they help stamp experiences that happen in the past as in the past. And that's important. We'll talk about why in a moment, but it's just important to know that declarative memories... Create a um awareness that something that's recalled in the past is no longer happening in the present, so let's compare that with what we would call implicit memories, which aren't recalled at will they arise whenever they want um, as unlo- they don't come up as thoughts they're experienced as feelings or Survival impulses, or like impulses to run or to attack or to freeze or to become very threat vigil, vigilant hyper vigilant for threats, and they both often will come up as really ingrained physical movements, and they're organized in lower regions of the brain the amygdala, the basal ganglia, the striatum. Um, They're not stored up largely as much in the neocortex, though some of them are. Um, Implicit or felt or emotional memories uh, create a felt sense of who we are, not a story, but feelings that we experience in real situations. In general, there's two types of implicit memories. The first type is what's called procedural. We won't be talking about them other than to say, that these are the memories that guide very routine behaviors like how you swim ride a bike walk how you tie your shoes and these memories these procedural memories are uh just activated in certain situations where we do repetitive behaviors every day and we don't want to think about them and they're done automatically but they don't change our emotions our feelings our state of being you when you're tying your shoes or when you're walking it doesn't in any way affect your mood but emotional memories are very very different kind of implicit content or unconscious content these are internal feelings impulses that arise in various situations and change the way we feel change our mood change our impulses, what we want to do, what creates them? Well, in general, any emotionally charged event in your life, especially an event associated or an experience associated with a threat, uh, a loss, or something that impacts your survival negatively or positively, will activate this core region, the amygdala, and your amygdala in conjunction with other regions will start recording very basic information, such as what stimuli you've become aware of that seems important. Like uh, if um, you're in a car accident, you will record the tire screeching and the headlights and the sound of the horn, And maybe the shocked expression of another passenger facing you in another car. And you'll also link with those sensory impressions, you'll link your emotional state at that moment, which would be fear in a car accident. And you'll also record the survival impulse, which would be bracing, tightening, locking your body to protect you on impact. So all of these events or experiences, the stimuli from the world around you, your body state, your emotion, and the impulses to survive are all linked together by the amygdala. And over time, they become very, as we'll talk about, durably wired. So let's look at some other examples. Suppose you're, you've you been mugged You might hear the sudden sounds of footsteps running up behind you, the sight of a knife. So those impressions will be last, will link in your brain along with a feeling of shock and the impulse to run, to survive. Suppose you as a child experienced a social rejection. You were uh, kicked out of a group of friends. You might remember the sight of the stimuli of just the image of people turning away from you laughing. Uh, You might recall the feeling of shame in your body and the impulse to shrivel and to break eye contact. Uh, If you as a child experienced sibling mistreatment, you might recall the mocking stare of a brother or sister the feeling of anger and the urge to scream and to tell and to have a parent intercede in your behalf. So all of those sensory stimuli, emotions, and impulses to survive are all linked together. Now, emotionally charged events are stored in such a way that even decades and decades later, they can activate strong distressing feelings and the same impulses to survive. So years and years and years after someone experienced a social rejection in grade school, if they experience something similar in adult life, something that reminds them of that social rejection, they'll feel the same extreme outsized shame that a grade schooler would feel. And they'll feel the same urge to shrivel and to hide and to get small. So whenever they're kind of like landmines, these emotional memories, they're stored unconsciously because when they occurred, the cortisol levels are so high that they knock the hippocampus, which creates declarative. Memories that we can recall whenever we want. Memories that have a beginning and a middle and an end. Uh, Those memories don't occur. All that are left are these emotional memories. Emotional memories are not things that we can recall at will. We don't walk around remembering them. They don't arise as thoughts. They arise as feelings, sudden impulses, sudden shifts of mood. But they don't arise as like they might at most, if it's a trauma, they might sometimes an image from a trauma from the past might suddenly flash before our eyes. Like if we've experienced some kind of abuse early on, sometimes people might have a sudden intrusive image, but they won't recall the entire experience. It'll just be a flash of an image along with physical terror a freeze impulse, a sense of shame, whatever. So let's look at an example by a famous
1: neuropsychologist, Joseph Ledoux at NYU. He talk he, excuse me, he talks about a couple going through a breakup
0: and they're maybe in college. And they are during the breakup eating at a pizza restaurant and they're both really miserable. And they're looking down at a red checkered tablecloth and they both feel just absolutely terrible and abandoned and disappointed. So they create an emotional memory and this emotional memory links the checkered cloth with misery and a feeling of deep sadness and loss. And so he he notes that decades later, if one of this couple meets someone wearing a similar checkered fabric on their shirt, they could very well be triggered into a sudden state of sadness or distrust or longing, Because even though they're not aware why, they have no idea that it's this this checkered cloth fabric that reminds them of an event from 20 years earlier in their life. It, It activates the same feelings and impulses from the original trauma. That's the way emotional memories work. They don't age. Memories from childhood, from teen years, 30, 40, 50 years later, can activate the same feelings from the original traumatic event. The same impulses to survive can be activated. Why is this? Well, because as we mentioned a little earlier, declarative memories, the ones we can recall whenever we want, time stamp the memories as in the past. But when a strong emotional event happens and sometimes it knocks the hippocampus completely offline because that's what cortisol and the HPA axis will do when we're under enough stress, their hippocampus stops really consciously creating stories. So what happens is we're left with these links of stimuli, Um feelings, emotions, and behavioral impulses, but we're not left with any anything that says that event is over, that it's not happening anymore. So as far as the emotional mind, the right hemisphere, and the amygdala are concerned, anytime any stimuli happens in our life that's remotely similar to that trauma, that emotional wounding event, can activate the memory, and then we'll be flooded with feelings that are from the past. We'll be flooded with survival impulses from the past. We'll be flooded with um, uh, like uh, freeze hypervigilance, sudden despair, sudden urges to hide, all from a past experience. In many ways, an emotional memory creates a mind that's living in two different time periods. The left hemisphere, which is the conscious, thought, largely thought, narrative, storytelling mind, still lives in 2022. But if suddenly somebody in your adult life acts in the way that a rejecting father or mother or friend from the past acts and it triggers you it triggers an emotional memory now your right hemisphere your effectual state of being will be living in the past will be living as if everything you've depended on could go away and you're alone and vulnerable so it's important, again, to understand that emotional memories do not arise as conscious content that we're, that we can, they're not, they don't arise as thoughts or stories. They arise as feelings. But because they don't arise as thoughts, very often we can be walking around and suddenly anxious or suddenly caught up in this desire to f- this this sense of being unloved, or suddenly this, this desire to uh, def- deflect anger, or suddenly this desire to connect with anyone at all costs, because some stimuli, even stimuli we're not aware of, has activated an emotional memory and has triggered those old mm-hmm. feelings from the past. Emotional memories are are parallelly stored. They're wired to countless other similar memories. They're very durable and resistant to change. So for example, um, how are memories of um, uh, abandonment stored, well, they, not just a single experience of the time a parent was un, emotionally unavailable or rejected, uh, our attempts to be heard and understood. Those memories organized by the amygdala will be linked to every other similar type of experience. It's a little bit like in our brain, we have a filing series of filing cabinets, one cabinet listed uh, loss, one cabinet listed you know uh times that other people mistreated us, one uh cabinet labeled important connections, one cabinet listed fear, frightening experiences, and every time a new experience uh occurs in life that Uh, is resonant it will not only be stored unconsciously but it will be associatively or neuronally linked to all the other similar types of memories that the amygdala thinks is in any way reminiscent or similar or in some way connected so that's what we get to see when we're dreaming Uh, The neuroscientist Robert Strickgold and colleagues at Harvard and Harvard Medical School said that dreams aren't drawn from declarative memories, but from implicit memories, memory, emotionally charged events. And when we're dreaming, we can observe how recent and past emotionally charged events are linked together. That's why sometimes in a dream, you'll see people from your distant past and people from your present, and very often it will be a negative experience because, well, guess what? The amygdala tends to give far more weight to threatening negative experiences than to positive. We'll talk a little bit more about that, Um Implicit memories are formed very often in the first four or five years of life before the hippocampus are developed. They can be formed from scary experiences, such as seemingly safe situations can still leave an emotional memory because unconsciously the amygdala gets all the sensory stimuli that's coming into the brain only a small fraction of that stimuli actually reaches our consciousness for awareness. But your amygdala sees everything. And if somebody gives you a sudden micro expression of disgust, rejection, or disinterest, even though you're not aware of it, that experience will be recorded by your amygdala. And later on, the experience can be emotionally stored and associated with all the other experiences of rejection or sudden people looking at you with some kind of uh, look of um, dislike. And at night, you might actually see that person doing something associated with rejection. And then you might see someone from your deep past associated with rejection And you might feel yourself in the dream trying to be heard, but nobody's listening or get somewhere, but you can't get there
1: because all of the feelings associated with that event are now being activated. Um,
0: Again, really strong, emotionally charged events, um, very often they can knock the hippocampus offline, but sometimes Uh, during a very painful event, we just don't want to think about it. We don't want to process it with other people. We don't want to talk about it. We just act as if it didn't happen and we try to push it out of awareness. So we get in a fight with someone and we say something that we regret and it creates a sense of shame and we don't want to think about it or feel it. So we just wince it away and just not think about it. Those Memories also wind up as emotionally implicit memories. You don't recall them because they've been compartmentalized, but they're there. And in the future, they can be activated. Somebody who's at a job where they're countlessly screamed at by a supervisor or boss, and they don't want to talk about how upsetting it is, so they compartmentalize it. They push it out of awareness. After work, they get drunk. They don't want to think about how difficult their boss is yelling at them all the time. But the anger and the feeling of hopelessness and frustration and powerlessness and the desire to yell or rage is still there. And then that person one day driving home from work gets cut off by someone else in another car and the next thing we know we have a road rage incident where they come out and they explode because for some reason the look of the other driver reminds them of their boss and all of that compartmentalized rage comes up and expresses itself. So stimuli we're unaware of can leave emotional memories. Stimuli we, and events we don't want to think about can leave emotional memories. Stimuli and experiences from early childhood when the hippocampus isn't working can leave emotional memories. And, of course, traumas, when, which completely knock the hippocampus offline and leave the memory systems without any context, leave emotional memories so and we've talked about how when they're stored by the amygdala unconsciously that we can't recall at will they're just latent there um they begin to be linked neuronally to other memories and they create these very complex um very overdetermined Matrixes of thematically linked memories. And every new experience in life has the possibility of triggering this entire thematically linked matrix. So, for instance, suppose you have a friend who's been dating someone for all of two weeks, and then they're suddenly ghosted by the person they're dating. And they might become extremely dysregulated, dysfunctional. They might start crying uncontrollably. They might start binge eating. They might start uh, hiding. They might sink into depression. And people, when this happened and they think, well, they were only dating for two weeks. Why this disproportionate response? Well, it's because it's not just the recent rejection the recent rejection has triggered this unconscious matrix of sometimes hundreds upon hundreds of previous emotional abandonments by different figures stemming all the way back to childhood. We all have in our minds a unconscious filing cabinet filled with files listed abandonment. Some filing cabinets listed mistreatment. Some filing cabinets listed uh, shame and embarrassment. And every new experience has the possibility of triggering all the emotional memories stored in those filing cabinets. This is why by the time we're adults, we have what we call baggage. When we say, I've got baggage, we're simply saying that we have emotional memories that are subject to being triggered and to arising as feelings and impulses. What are some of the telltale symptoms? One of the most common symptoms, besides a sudden episode of, for example, anxiety, sense of impending danger, rapid pounding, heartbeats, sweating, chills, trembling, shortness of breath, tightness in your throat. And these symptoms can be so strong that, believe it or not, this is a stunning fact, but you can look it up. It's there courtesy of the Mayo Clinic and other uh, studies have shown that 50% of emergency room visits for heart attacks are due to panic and not an actual physiological event in the heart. But people believe they're having a heart attack because suddenly out of the blue, their chest is pounding. They can't get their breath. They're sweating. They're trembling. They have shortness of breath. they There's this tightness around the heart center. So that's a common experience. Sometimes an anxiety attack where somebody is sweaty and just wants to run and hide when they're they're in a social situation. Very commonly emotionally intrusive events are known by a flood of rumination. Now, why is this? Well, generally in life, when any event happens, our left hemisphere's job, the Broken Wernicke's region is to jump in and turn it into a story with a beginning, a middle, and an end, or some kind of interpretation. And most of the time it does that pretty well because we understand why things happen. If you walk out onto a, uh, a street and you narrowly get missed by a car and the car passes you by, but it's not that terrifying. You turn it into a story. Oh, my goodness, I should have looked. I almost got sideswiped by a car. It was scary. I'm, I'm going to make sure I don't do that again. So that's you can tell about that story later on. If you know, most of the experiences in life we can narrate quite well. But when an emotional event happens or emotional memories triggered from the past, we very often have no clue why we feel the way we feel, why we have the sudden impulse to lash out and scream, why we feel this sudden anger at someone, why we feel this disproportionate fear or And so, what happens is the left hemisphere is now generating as much content as it can to try to explain what's going on, but it can't because it doesn't know that it's not about what's happening in the present. It's about an event from our distant past. This leaves the left hemisphere in an impossible situation. It has to explain what's going on, but it really doesn't know why we're feeling the way we feel, why we have the sudden impulse. So, for example, suppose you have a friend who hasn't responded to a text message, and you suddenly feel a desire to ream them out, as we say, you know, write something terrible to them, tell them off, or cut them off. This really strong, and we re- repeat in our mind this outrage. How dare they not respond to my text? I respond to all of their texts immediately. Why are they waiting a day to respond? Well, it's because this event has triggered a memory associated with a wounding rejection from your past, and now you're feeling all of the anger and resentment from that past forgotten experience in the present. That's why rumination occurs, because even while we're telling the story about why we should hate this person or why something is so scary, we don't realize that the feelings are stemming from an event we've forgotten. And so because it doesn't make it doesn't adequately interpret the experience. We keep on generating more and more and more interpretation because it never feels entirely right. We're not sure why the just the resentment or the fear or catastrophizing thoughts aren't adequately capturing the experience. So in the wake of emotionally, when we're triggered, one of the clearest ways besides the sudden shift of feeling and mood, the sudden withdrawal impulses very often to hide to or shame or sudden rage. But another clue is when there's repetitive, intrusive ruminations that won't stop. Even especially due to a relatively small interpersonal experience. As they say, when there's an old therapy nugget, if it's hysterical, it's historical. In other words, if our emotional response, if the rumination is disproportionate, means that it's not about the present event, it's about something from the past. So due to negativity bias, our amygdalas are, give five times the weight to negative experiences over positive. Uh, it seems that evolution decided that it was more important we remember the one time we reached into the bush at a thousands of times and got bit by a snake rather than 9,900 times we found berries in the bush and ate them. Evolution doesn't care about positive events that much. It cares about threats, it cares about attachment losses, it cares about survival at all costs. So a lot of the unconscious stored by the amygdala, especially in lower regions of the brain, especially right hemisphere, bottom-up circuits, negative experiences are given at least five times the neural weight as positive ones. So a classic example of that is if I showed you images of five people smiling and five people with neutral experiences and images, photographs of five people frowning, and then waited two weeks and then put a whole bunch of images in front of you and said, pick out the ones you've seen before. You'll pick out all of the images of people who originally in the first Set, we're frowning at you because your brain decides that it's important to remember the negative, not the positive. You might remember one of the people who in the original photographs was smiling, you won't remember any of the neutral expression people. It's called negativity bias. Look it up, it's a real thing, and it determines why our unconsciouses are so filled with negative. Memories, negative, you know, events. And uh, it's also a reason why Gottman, the famous clinical psychology of attachments and relationships noted that for every one negative interpersonal event in a relationship, we need five positive events to undo it because each positive event will get one-fifth the amount of attention from lower uh, neuroceptive regions of the brain. So the question is then, what can be done? Uh, Freud thought simply bringing the unconscious to conscious attention was enough. Now, to be clear, there is value in that, because as we noted, being able to narrate traumatic events, when you can narrate them as a beginning, a middle, and an end, and it begins to help your brain understand that these experiences are no longer happening in the present, that they're in the past, that they're over with. But talk therapy alone is minimally effective in complex PTSD where the memories happen in the first four or five years of life where there was no hippocampus. So there's no real events that are stored by the hippocampus that we can recall. They're there in the amygdala. The amygdalas organize them in the lower regions of the brain and won't forget them, but they are not available to conscious memory, and therefore there's no way by talking about them to tell the brain that those early abandonments or early fears are done with. There are ways to lead to what's called fear extinction, but not by simply talking about those experiences. Also, for example experiences of rejection that you weren't even aware of happening because your hippocampus doesn't even turn them into a story, can't remember them, those two times you've experienced a trauma and went into a freeze state, knocked your hippocampus offline, nothing to be recalled. Therefore, there's no way to bring it back and add a timestamp of it being in the past. So, Talk therapy can work with certain kinds of traumas. Likewise, therapies like EMDR are useful in certain kinds of uh, painful events, but generally the ones you can re- remember, the ones you can't especially the ones from early childhood the ones during the kind of traumas where you're knocked unconscious or lost in a dissociative freeze state the emotional experiences that were so shocking that it overwhelmed the hippocampus events that you don't aren't aware of are leaving a, an imprint those types of experiences can be worked with we can actually lead to fear extinction but not The normal way, what we have to do is look around for disconfirming evidence in our lives. Every time they arise, we have to find evidence around us that we're safe. So when someone is suddenly triggered by fear or overwhelming anger or overwhelming uh, feeling of needing to cling or addictive impulses, just looking around peacefully, letting your attention rest on all the evidence that you're now an adult, that you're no longer stuck in a dysfunctional family, or that you're no longer in those past uh, experiences where the traumas originally occurred, and just flood your mind, show your inner child, as we call it, the evidence that you are safe now. And this is a long and It's a practice we have to do again and again and again. We have to drink in signs of safety. And there's another approach that works as well, and we're going to be doing it in our meditation, which is in a mindfulness practice, you can hold a triggering image, an experience that recently has led to a lot of rumination, or where you feel a sudden sense of overriding fear or catastrophizing thoughts or impulses to rage, just this resentment or wanting to just push someone away. So you bring up the image, and then you focus on the expression of the emotional memory in the body, the feelings that arise. And you pay attention to those feelings. And then you let go of the triggering image, the most recent person associated with the the reaction. You let go of the image now, and you just stay with the feelings, and you ask, what else is there? What else does this remind me of? When did I feel this feeling in the past? And believe it or not, it's not uncommon for people to suddenly have memories from their distant past that are linked with this latest emotional wound, memories that are deeply in the past that may not have even seemed to be important, suddenly float up from the vast depths of the associative circuits of the uh right cortex and and the right amygdala and then when these early experiences are there we are now in the presence of something that we can see is really what's being triggered and knowing what really is being what is the underpinning for our present experience we can begin to talk and connect with that feeling and offer it compassion offer it protection, tell it what we're going to do to take care of ourselves so that we won't have to experience these events in the future. So I would go on because I could talk about emotional memories forever, it seems, but that would just bore the heck out of you. So what I'm going to do instead is I'm going to lead a meditation where we actually practice with this content. So
2: Find a really comfortable seated position. And what I invite you to do is look away from the screen so you don't see me. And... You don't see anything on your screen and you're going to close your eyes and bring
1: your awareness into your body, specifically looking for what is right now the most soothing
2: sensation that I can find. What's the most pleasant? For some of us, it might be
1: the eyes floating in two pools of water.
0: For some, it might be the palms of the hands. For some, it might be
1: the feeling of the breath gently expanding and releasing in the chest. For some, it might just be some
2: feeling of comfort maybe in the heart center or somewhere else. Sometimes I've
0: even, many people find a lot of tension in their shoulders, but sometimes when I've done a lot of yoga and relaxed, my shoulders feel really good and I can find a really comfortable anchor for my attention there. Of course, if we're chronically stressed or overworked, we might feel this ongoing clenching in the shoulders. So find where in your body There's some kind of reliable sensation associated with
1: ease. And if nothing
2: presents itself, just listen to the sounds entering your awareness.
1: And you're not going to try to listen to any distant conversations
0: or put images to what's creating the sounds. You're not gonna label the sounds, you're just gonna listen to the sounds that surround
1: you like they are a very exotic soundtrack
2: for a movie you haven't seen. One Buddhist monk I studied
1: with referred to it as pretending that we're
0: an astronaut from another planet and you've just landed in a human body.
1: And you're first going to
2: find a sensation that feels very welcoming. And then there's a second practice We're going to systemically
1: move down the body and relax using the breath, using
2: very compassionate quality of attention,
1: different sensations in the body, trying to make the body a more comfortable receptacle for our awareness, If the entire body
0: is stressed, it's very difficult to stay present. We want to bounce away from the present into thoughts which eventually
1: turn into distressing ruminations. So it's much easier just to use your awareness to breathe into different regions of your body to send compassionate attention. Start with your forehead and
0: just imagine you can breathe in ease into your forehead. And as you breathe in, just imagine a sense of warmth and life entering. And then as you breathe out, imagine
2: any tension or tightness could be released. Breathing into the eyes
1: with the inhalation, you just feel a warm, carrying attention, a
0: spotlight of awareness on the sensations of your eyes.
1: And then slowly releasing the breath, and as you release the
2: breath, imagining the eyes settling behind the eyelids. Breathing into the neck. Imagine
1: awareness into your neck, the front of your neck, and then as you breathe out,
2: releasing any clenching or tightness there. Breathing into... The shoulders, becoming aware of the shoulders,
0: letting the light of awareness fueled by your inhalation, your in breath, just lighting up the shoulders so you can really take in all the sensations. And as you breathe out, let the shoulders drop away
2: from your ears. Allow your shoulders to fully release. Breathing into your heart center.
1: You want to put a hand on your heart center, that's fine. As you breathe in, just feel the breath entering from that sensation of contact and warmth. And then as you breathe out,
2: release any tightness. And then continue down your body.
1: Breathing in, becoming aware of different sensations of different areas. And then as you breathe out, just release, let go. Let the body and the muscles drop. Especially when you get to the abdomen, the
0: belly. As you breathe in, let the belly expand. And then as you breathe out, just release and try
1: to cultivate the softest, most pliant belly you possibly
2: can. So for a little while we'll sit for longer in silence and just practice bringing your awareness back to any feeling
1: in your body that just feels that is comfortable or the sense or just taking in the body as a whole A constellation of sensations like a night sky. Each sensation, whether it's from the distant galaxies of your toes, to the much closer solar system of your eyes and your nose, to the more distant galaxies of your fingers stomach, all these sensations are like lights from distant stars and closer stars, sometimes dimmer, sometimes brighter, sometimes flickering, sometimes obscured. But just like you don't judge stars, you don't
0: take them personally, don't judge or take personally the sensations of your body, just just cultivate this
1: very observant, appreciative awareness that all of these sensations are associated
2: with the body that's been keeping you alive. So at this point, I'd
1: invite you to bring to mind an image of a recent event. And for this uh, practice, let's bring to mind a specific person, someone that you found yourself either thinking about a lot, ruminating about. Some strong
0: emotions have been triggered. It could be someone you know or someone
1: you don't even know, but they've triggered a lot of intrusive thoughts.
2: Just find one image, a static image, that really
0: feels like it's the most resonant. And you know it's resonant, one, when you start to feel in your body a kind of tightening. Maybe your heart will start to beat a little faster. Your stomach muscles might clench a little bit more. Your shoulders might suddenly feel a little or taut. You might start to f- suddenly feel a lot of movement in your eyes, or you might feel the impulse to start thinking a lot about this person, just their image will trigger this intrusive flood of thoughts. But What I'd like you to do is when you find the right image, focus on the body. Find an area of your body that seems to most hold
1: the feelings that this person has
2: triggered, activated. And if you don't feel anything in your body, keep trying different images
0: different even events, until you find some image of some person or event that triggers, activates, generates some kind of strong
1: or some kind of at least noticeable physiological shift.
2: Once you find that body that's been
1: activated, I would invite you to let go
0: now of the image that you've worked so hard to find. Just
1: pay attention to that feeling and just ask the question, when did
2: I feel this way before in my life? What does this remind me of? When have I felt this way before? What does this remind me of? What else is there? Come out, come out. Show yourself. It's okay. You're safe. I won't judge. And whether or not
1: any images, memories, experiences from the past rise up from the depths of
2: your mind and show themselves knowing this feeling
1: without adding all the stories on top of it, Just ask this feeling how we can take care of it. What does
2: it really need? Feeling this feeling, what do you most need? feeling this feeling, what do you most need?
1: When I have this feeling, this ageless feeling of not being seen, not feeling safe, not feeling connected,
2: whatever the feeling is, what do we really need? let go of the stories about the present person.
0: Because remember, the feelings are not really about the most
1: recent event, it's about all the past memories
2: that have been brought online by this most recent event. So that's an example of the practice. So at this point, I
1: invite you to just gently and slowly, at your own
0: pace,
1: let go of the image. Well, you've already done that. Let go of the feelings.
2: Become aware of the room around you. And
1: whenever you're ready, if you'd like return to the gathering on
2: your screen. Thank you for your practice.